Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. G'day everyone and welcome to this week's guest. Great pleasure to introduce Alex Brosk. How are you, Alex? I'm good, Ian. How are you? Really good, mate. Uh, as a sport nut, I love chatting with anyone who's uh, from a sporting background and particularly someone whose career I've got to watch on TV, so an honour to have you here. Speaking of football, we've talked about some of your backstory and you said you know the, the majority of it does revolve around your football. Is there a career highlight that sort of stands out, maybe maybe to do with football, but maybe to do with, you know, like who was there or was there, is there some moment that really grabs you? Um, yeah, there definitely is. I think there's, there's probably one moment um, and, and more because of what you said, just the people that were there, the fact that um, at that point I already had children and they were able to run onto the field with me. Um, you know, all of that, everyone that was at the ground. So it was a grand final that we won in um, the 16-17 season with Sydney or 15-16. I can't remember. It was a penalty shootout um, that we had over Melbourne Victory and uh, and we won the grand final at Allianz Stadium. Um, Just the season we had, obviously, so that was incredible. The group of boys that we did it with, um, you know, it ended in a real dramatic way. Penalty shootout, Lincoln scores. Um, and just the feeling, I mean, it'd been a long time. I'd only won one grand final before that, and it was in Melbourne. So I'd never actually had a taste of winning something at home in front of family and friends. And like I said, with, you know, my whole family, parents, brothers, sisters in the crowd, my wife with the kids, um, then coming on the field after, that was definitely, and then obviously sharing it as well with, uh, with people in Sydney. That was just, uh, for me, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate, the best feeling that I've ever had. Awesome. Yeah, I was actually... Yeah, that day perched up in the, the top of the uh, western side. Yeah, great day. Um, I don't know how you guys do penalty shootouts with those sort of pressure, but uh, anyway. did you take one of the penalties actually? I did. I took the first one. Um, I'm not a I'm not a big penalty taker. I never used to be in my career. I think it's something that uh, once um, I became captain, it was a, a responsibility I felt that I had to take on. Um, and I remember just before thinking. I've never taken a penalty in a penalty shootout before. This is, uh, you know, this isn't this isn't how I want this to go. But um, yeah, I remember Arnie telling everyone to put their hand up who's going to take one, and I knew okay, as the captain I've got to step up. You know, it doesn't it doesn't look good if um, you know I'm wanting the boys to sort of follow me for 90 minutes and then you know I, I hide behind uh, everyone else when it comes to penalty shootout. So I put the hand up, and it wasn't a great penalty at all. But uh, thankfully, the people went the wrong way. <laughs> Oh, I love it. That's leadership, though, right? You've got to stand up even when you uh, when you perhaps don't want to. I'm curious, though. So, if you're thinking, "Wow, I've never taken it before," what what was your mind? How did you get yourself in the right mindset to actually step up and take it? Um, look, the nerves pretty much as soon as as soon as Annie said, "Right, Brosky, you're first." Um, there, there was a couple seconds there. I remember of um, not panic, but just uh, a lot of, like real nervousness and, and thinking, you know, of. of all the negative things, you know, what's going to happen if I miss, well, I don't want to, you know, get us off on the wrong foot um, and all those things. But, you know, within within a couple of seconds, like I said, my mind had just completely turned to thinking, right, I've made a decision now, it, you know, you've got to just pick a side, commit to it, um, and what will be will be, you know, at the end of the day. If you miss a lot better players than me around the world in bigger stages than this penalty, so it'll just be one of those things that I have to deal with and, and that's it. Um, so I was actually quite confident walking up and I think the fact that I had the crowd behind me um, and just getting that energy off them, um, you know, just made all those worries 
and, and concerns that I had about missing actually turned to positive about the feeling that I was going to have when I scored, you know. So uh, it's actually incredible how my mind was able to uh, change itself, really. I don't think there's anything I did. It was just a combination of different things and understanding, right, forget the negative, let's, let's make it into a positive. What's the feeling going to be like when I score? All this crowd's going to you know, go crazy. Um, and, and, yeah, my mindset just changed. And, uh, you know, thankfully, like I said, while it wasn't a great penalty, it was enough to... Uh, still get us off to a good start yeah that what you said there about what will it feel like when you do score i think to me that may be automatic but even that thought on its own is such a powerful uh positive anchor that you then place there in front of you like yeah that felt good even thinking about it i definitely want to feel that i don't know if you believe in destiny or anything like that where you think well yeah it wasn't a great penalty but you were meant to score like do you have any of those sort of thoughts you know what? I, it, it's a hard one because I don't. I'm not someone who um, who likes to think that way and think. You know, the, the whole thing about fate and what will be will be. But certainly, you look back at some things and some moments throughout history, not just with, with my playing. It just seems like some things just really are meant to be, and you can't explain it. You know, so while I don't like to put um, you know anything I do in the you know in those sorts of hands, I'd rather take as much control as I can. Yeah. Um, some things just happen and you look back and, and you just can't explain it, but you're right. Things have a funny way of working out. Mm. Um, now, I imagine one of those moments of like uh, your parents choosing to move from Uruguay to Australia would be one of those things where you're like, well, yeah, what what may have been if you if that hadn't happened? Is that one of those things you're talking about that you just look back and think, wow, like the journey that you've now taken as a result of that? Absolutely. Um, and look, that, that was a decision, obviously. Uh, my parents were quite young when they moved here. They were both in their early teens. Um, so it was a decision made by their families. But I think Uruguay, um, you know, back in those days, in, in, you know, in the 70s, wasn't in a good place. Um, and a lot of people were trying to, um, to escape and, and leave the country. Uh, a lot of parts of South America in general were, you know, under dictatorship and, you um, yeah, I think they made the decision that, um, you know, Australia or, you know, Canada, USA, there were a few different options for them. Thankfully, they chose Australia. Funnily enough, I mean, I had this discussion with my wife um, not long ago. It just, you, you look back at all moments like that and, and you talk about fate and things and, and destiny and, you know, everything that had to happen for us to, to be together, for the family we had to have, for the lives we had to share. Um, my dad, when he landed in, um, in Australia, the plan for them was to move down to Melbourne. So they had um, every intention of moving down to Melbourne. I think they had some friends down there that had moved there and told them about Melbourne. They got to the airport and um, they saw another friend that they knew from, from back home and told them, look, I go down to Melbourne, you know, Sydney's beautiful, stay here. And they ended up just walking out the airport and staying in uh, in Sydney, so it's it is funny how things work out, you know, when you look back at that. But um, that that definitely would have a life changing moment like that for my parents, my grandparents. Um, you look back, and, and I think that generation in general just had it so much more difficult than what we have. We're, we're very spoiled um, in the way we're brought up these days, in the way we're bringing our kids up, probably even worse. But um, it, it gives you a real um, appreciation for the things that they had to do in order for us to lead, lead the lives that we've been fortunate enough to lead. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I got tingles all through that. Um, and I, even, even that story that you told, like your, your parents came out separate families. There's, there's so many, there'd be so many stories like that where people would have been drawn together. Their parents moved out here. They were drawn together into similar circles and then connected in a whole new country. Um, that's to me, that's one of the magic parts of, of Australia is is these amazing different cultural backgrounds that we have that create this uh, beautiful what is it melting pot of uh, different mm -hmm. backgrounds. Yeah, definitely, definitely. The, the whole country. I mean, especially out where I live as well, out in Western Sydney, there uh, everyone has a story. Everyone came from from somewhere, and, and their family did something to get them to the point that they are now. Um, and look, there's while there's so many good stories, obviously there's some bad ones as well. I think it would it would have been difficult. I, I try and put myself in that mindset now, and with my daughter being 11 years old, if, if we were to say, right, we're packing up and we're moving to a new country, all your friends, all your family. We'll be left behind. We've got to go. We've got to set up something new. How difficult 
it would be for her and um, certainly that would have been the case for so many different people and you know while in my case and with my mum and my dad everything uh, went well I know personally as well my you know my uncle he struggled with that he was older than what my mum was he, he was in school and, and had a, a good group of friends and he struggled with the fact that he had to come here and, and live here against I guess um, what, what he wanted and uh, you know it definitely would have been a difficult situation for him so hearing his stories when I was growing up and him telling me all about that it definitely um, shows you that for every good story there's definitely one uh, that, that was a lot more difficult and, and just shows you how difficult it would have been for the parents having to make those decisions back then. Yeah absolutely I mean doing it for for what they believe is a is a better life and a better scenario um, but yeah so so is that something for your uncle that that created ongoing problems for him the fact that he didn't want to be here um yeah look it is a, a, a difficult subject but it is something that he struggled with you know he, did, he definitely did and um look he, he was okay in telling me that it was because he was a lot older like i said in, in his, in his uh, mid to later teens um you know imagine a, a 16 17 year old kid having to just pack up and say goodbye to him especially that you know that age it's really difficult you start getting a real bond with your your mates you start um, doing a lot more on your own, you start moving around, um, being a lot more independent, and then to just have to pack up and leave um, is difficult. And it, it definitely was, um, you know, tough for him. He moved out here, he, and then pretty early on moved out of home and moved it to uh, move around Bondi and the beaches there. And any given chance he could, he, he kept going back to South America and um, spending some time there. So he never lost that connection with the country. Whereas my my mum, I think, I, I don't think she ever went back. Um, you know, oh, wow. so it, it just shows two different, two different sides, two different, um, I guess, ways of ways of understanding and dealing with with what was uh, brought onto them as a challenge, and um, different ways of coping and, and handling it. Definitely. Yeah, um, and that makes me think of like how you had to handle the, the different steps in your journey as well. So when when you were starting out as a footballer, were, were you someone that was like naturally a standout or were you a, like a good player that, that went okay like, like what was that journey like for you as a team uh, i think in my uh, in my very early years when i first started um, playing up until around you know 11 and 12 I, I was always playing in a in a local um for a local south american club and um look i think looking back at, uh, at videos from back then and listening to you know what family uh, i actually played with my wife's brother at, at that age we grew up playing together we have a lot of other yeah family friends that we that played together and we're still good close mates um and look so from what i hear from from back then and see in footage i think i probably was uh, one of the standouts in in that age uh, but then once i got a little bit older into you know the early teens um i sort of i never grew so i never you know other kids were getting bigger and stronger and quicker and um and i sort of stayed at that level so i sort of i think i definitely dropped back in, in terms of all the state teams and things like that i was never anywhere near um any of those things from say under under 13s right through the 16s um and yeah, I think once I got to six, um, so around 16, 17, you know, I had a real big growth spurt. Um, my pace, you know, developed as well and everything I'd be working on to, to try and help that. Um, I guess initial couple yards of pace when I, when I wasn't as big and as, as quick, um, all that sort of, um, and, and look, I guess in, in being a smaller player, you've got to work out other ways of trying to, you know, not lose the ball, obviously, and find a pass. And you've got to try and um, use other other attributes that you have and try and develop a quicker, um, you know, um, way of thinking when it comes to being on the ball and before you can get the ball. And I think all those things help me when I did eventually get that pace and get that little bit of strength. So. I think in, in those years, in those middle years, I, I definitely fell back in terms of um, my level compared to, you know, other players. But then I think those years definitely helped me, um, you know, when I did develop physically and, um, and get that little bit of pace as well as I got older. Yeah, that's cool. Did that lack of size have a negative impact away from football as well? No, not really, not at all. Actually, I mean, I, again, while I, I 
wasn't one of the biggest and quickest and strongest. I, I don't think I was, uh, I was always quite a, a skinny, scrawny little kid, so there wasn't much to me, but um, yeah. uh, nothing that really affected me, you know, it's just, it, it was me, there were other kids like me, so I didn't really ever feel um, like I was, I was different. Um, yeah, and, and if anything, with, with the football side of things, um, I didn't particularly care that I wasn't one of the best. For me, football was always about um, enjoying and going every couple of days to train with a group of boys that I love training with, that I love being around. I love football. It was always where I was happy out in the, out in the training field. If I could train every day, all day, I would have. Um, so I just I just love playing football and, and I was around a group of guys um, that I love being around as well. And that was all that was important to me. You know, while I had those um, dreams, just like every other kid, when you every four years a World Cup comes around and you're watching the World Cup or you're watching the Premier League and even the old NSL that I used to, that I grew up watching, you, you dream of being there. I, for me, it was the furthest thing from my mind. I, I just love playing the game. And if I could do what I was doing every day with my mates, then that was more than enough for me. Yeah, love it. Just a thought that came to mind then, when in in the World Cup qualifying campaigns in um, 2003 and, oh, not three, one and, and five, when, when we're playing Uruguay for that final spot, <laughs> what, what was that like for someone from the Australian Uruguay community? like? Was it was it challenging? Was it like to bring you great joy and pride? What was that like? You know, it, it's actually interesting because both I experienced them quite differently at both at both times. So, two thousand and one, I, I was at the AIS at the time, right? So, um, you imagine a kid who's at the AIS, you know, which is funded by the Australian, you know, public and government, um, and and all those people want to go out and represent Australia. You would have thought. It, it, I would have been all all Australia, and and I definitely was. I remember going down with one of the boys from the AIS to the game and thinking, you know, I wanted Australia to win. Um, but because I was in Canberra, I got a bus straight down there, and my old man he came down with a, a few groups of mates as well. They got a bus down a different one, and, and we met there all together. And um, the day before, no, the morning of the game, so we. Um, the group of mates that went with my dad, they were they were Uruguayan guys. They found out where Uruguay was, the team was going to be going for a team walk in that morning. So we decided to go and I thought, well, I can't wear my, uh, my Aussie jersey. Um, so I got a Uruguayan jersey and I put it over the top and I went to, um, and I went to see the train and I took a photo with, uh, with Rakova and, and one of the other players. And just the, I remember the energy, something that never left me. All, this, all the Uruguayan people, they all had jerseys, they were playing the drums. Um, the Uruguayan players, they, they embraced it. They, they were mixing with the people. This is the day of the game, mind you. Yeah. Whereas the Australian team, I don't think anyone knew where they were going. You didn't know, you know, which is normal. We, we, we sort of all, all, always do that now. Whenever the Aussie team, the soccerers, we get together and go for a team walk. It's just a team. No one knows, there's no media, there's no one else. It's just a team. And, and I was just taken back by just how, I don't know, just the feeling of, of the players with the people. And, and I saw how much it meant to the Uruguayan people to have to win this game. And, and, and I thought, you know what, it, this is incredible. It, it, mean, it does mean more to them. I've got a feeling and a, and a sense that it meant more to the Uruguayan people than to the Australian people. While it was massive for Australia to be in a World Cup, we, we, we hadn't been in one for so long. It is different. It, it's different. It means something else to, to South Americans in general. You know, football. It, it's it is more than the life to them. You know, they they work hard and they save whatever they can to go to the football. Whereas for us, if we can go to the football, we'll go to the football type thing. You know, so it's it's completely different. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of Australians that are that are hardcore, you know, fanatics as well, and they do feel the same way. Yeah. But as a general, um, there's a lot more people and there's a lot more feeling be behind it. And so it sort of changed me a little bit, you know, getting to game thinking, geez, you know, like, give how much instant maybe they do do it, you know. But four years later, um, my mindset had changed completely, you know, and I thought, you know what, we deserve this. You know, I, yeah. I recovered at that point, came out making some quite arrogant comments that, that it is their right to be at a World Cup compared to Australia. Um, and, you know, that definitely swung me the other way where I thought, that's not right. You know, I think this is something that definitely is earned and no one deserves it above anybody else. 
Uh, and I was at a different stage as well. You know, I'd grown up a lot more as a 17-year-old kid in 2001. I was now uh, obviously four years older in 2003 before uh, before that World Cup. And, um, yeah, it, it just – I was – when Johnny Aloisi scored the penalty, I remember being in front of the TV. I couldn't get to the game and just crying. It was an emotion that I'd never felt before watching a game of football. So two different yeah. uh, feelings going into each game. Yeah, wow. Um, I probably didn't have a full appreciation, and I, and I and I can't have a full appreciation not having lived there. But a, a mate of mine who spent some time in Peru talks about like it's just different how how football is, and and, and writing when they win, writing when they lose, when it's a national team, all sorts of things. Like it's it's bigger. But what you talked about then about like the shift because I knew you were going to head there. It was very much a shift, and that was also a it was a, a shift of the country of of what we probably thought that we actually would be able to make it like it felt yeah. different even even like i think about i was at the game and and the booing of the the uruguayan national anthem and at first everyone's looking at each other going really we're doing this but it, to me it was a reflection of well that's how much we wanted at that time exactly it's, right exactly right it's funny you mentioned the the emotion for me that was the year my dad passed away so it was an emotion a motive year as it was but the next day like i just sobbed uncontrollably i think it was like the, all that all that pain of pent up past sporting experiences for me but i also remember um uh is it jason davison um alan's son when he was talking yeah, about yeah. um like his dad and watching his dad and the emotion for him he said he that's when he realized how big it was from all those like past experiences of players from again if you think of the the national team all those different backgrounds um, coming together like it, it really was a combination of, of so much of effort from all of those different those different teams yeah it definitely was and you could you could sense it getting into that as well just that, that heartache that we've had as a country uh, in watching our team get so close for so many years um there, there was a different feeling you talk about you know booing of the national anthem um, I, that's probably a naivety that we have in this country. We're almost too nice, you know, and we and we frown on things like that. But that's at the end of the day, you're talking about the difference between going to a World Cup or not going. And if it means putting off your your opposition and and rattling them, that's what they do everywhere else in the world because of how much it means to them. And I think that was a sign that hold on, you know, we we deserve this now. This is our time, and we're going to do whatever we can within within reason, of course. You know, yeah. um, you don't want to do anything that goes over the top or, or beyond, um, you know, the ethics and, and of sport. But um, there are things that you can do to, um, to to rattle an opposition, which um, on a stage like that, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. And I think that was definitely a, a moment where the Australian sporting um, and sport public really sort of grew into their own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, whew, tingles. That's just one of those moments that really will never leave you. And I guess uh, no. no matter where, where you, which part of the football community you are. So you suddenly have this growth spurt and you then realise that actually you're quite talented. How do you go from, from a 16-year-old kid who suddenly has, is making this progress to be into the NSL and then picked up by a a team on the other side of the world. Um, yeah, well, it all it all did happen for me quite quickly. Um, like you said, and, and like I mentioned earlier, that sort of growth spurt happened when I was sixteen, um, and I had a good year in under sixteen. I scored I think about twenty goals um, in in the uh, in the competition, and then moved up into back then the old national youth league had Colts and a youth league. And then I played for Marconi Colts, and I had another good season there got picked up to go to the AIS. So really in those two years, I sort of went from not expecting much and just playing because I enjoyed it to at the AIS. And um, it was at that moment that I thought, right, um, initially even making it there, I, I sort of struggled with that because I thought, oh, all these kids that are here, they've been in the state teams right throughout. Um, you know, they basically know each other. I, I'm someone who hasn't and I've sort of come, in, I've come, come into my own um, form quite, quite recently. I had that doubt whether I actually even belong there, you know, um, in, in what is supposedly, you know, the best, say, 20 or so players in, in the country. I, I struggled initially with thinking, 
um, that I belong there. But, you know, I think, you know, after training and, um, and developing and the training that I got there was incredible. You know, I, I looked at, at, at that moment definitely as a huge year in terms of my progression as a player and what I learned to sort of move on from there. Um, to, you know, very quickly believing and feeling like I belong there and, um, and I was there because I deserved it. Um, and then came back in, in the NSL and, um, you know, I only scored one goal in my, in my debut season, but um, I remember, um, you know, having quite a good year and there was a fair bit of, you know, media and, and hype that came with that. Um, and then because the NSL was sort of coming to an end in those years that I was there, there was a, an important decision to make. I guess, you know, the, the, the general feeling was that if you wanted to make it as a footballer, you had to go overseas. So, you know, um, just before the Olympics, I um, ended up signing for, for Feyenoord. I signed a contract with them and immediately went out on loan um, to Westerlo in Belgium. Um, and, yeah, that was a, a very difficult year for me. It was a, one that I enjoyed when I look back on, but at the time, very difficult. I, I had an injury, a, a bad ankle injury in my first game, um, and I was out for about five weeks. So already um, dealing with that as a, as a 20-year-old kid was quite difficult, you know, obviously being away from home, but then spending the first you know, month in a, in a treatment room while the players, you don't, you don't really know the players yet. They're thinking in their heads, like this young Aussie kid, here he is, and you can't hack it, basically, you know, in the tre treatment room after one week. Um, so that was difficult for me. There was a lot of times just running around the pitch on my own in a foreign country, can't speak the language, freezing cold in winter, and I'm thinking, Jesus, I mean, what am I doing here? You know, this is yeah. uh, crazy. Only six months ago, I was in, I was playing with friends and uh, in, a, in a competition where everybody's, you know, talking about me, writing about me, and... Um, and now I'm nobody, and, and I'm nobody knows me. I'm not even playing, and it's a, it's a difficult thing to have to go through. Mm. You you mentioned when we chatted uh, the other week how like there was never really a point where you thought you were actually going to make it when you were younger. You just kind of just kept progressing and progressing, and you described there in both of those situations where you kind of felt like an outsider. So how much of an impact did that have on you mentally in both of those situations that, that you, yeah, didn't feel properly part of the, the team or part of the unit? Um, it's very difficult. I think um, for, those, for two different reasons there, right? One, one thinking that I sort of don't belong and one um, not so much feeling like I don't belong, but actually uh, finding it difficult because, um, because of everything you hear, everything that everyone told me before going overseas was like, listen, the way they look at Australians over there, you're nobody, it's going to be difficult for you. And I, I definitely experienced that. Before starting my first game, the coach pulled me aside, he had a few words to me and said, listen, you know, this is, you're not in Australia anymore. You know, this is a difficult league. And I, and I remember thinking, okay, well, that's exactly what they think of us, you know, and, and, and it's trying to prove yourself all over again. Uh, but again, I remember even even as far as being in the Socceroos and looking around and seeing Cahill, Bresciano, Grella, Sforza, Paducah, these absolute monsters of Australian football and thinking, what am I doing here? You know, like, I'm, there's no way I should be in this team and, and, and I'm training and, you know, I'm, I'm mixing it with him and, and doing quite well. But these are guys playing in the Serie A, in the Premier League and, um, you know, I'm, I'm playing back home in, in the NSL or the A-League and, and thinking, what am I doing here type thing? So it's something that I always struggle with, you know, me personally. Um, and uh, I know it's not it's not common, it's not general, everyone deals with things differently, but that was something that I always had to deal with um, in, in different situations, right? And um, but particularly in those three where I thought um, you know, that I was that I was out of my depth in a way or or, or um, you know, everybody else was just so much better than what I was. And um, look it's definitely a challenge, it's something that I had to overcome and and, and instead of proving everybody else that I deserved to be there, it was more once I was able to prove to myself that I deserve to be there, um, you know, that's when I feel comfortable again. Yeah. And that's something that, that people can relate to, right? Like is realising that you have to prove it to yourself. I wonder how many other players in all those environments were feeling a similar way and whether that's a conversation that is now had in, in team environments about like whether you feeling that real belonging. Yeah, probably not. You know, we, we ended up having um, Arnie, he brought on a, a, a mental coach um, to help more so the younger players back um, 
you know, a couple of years ago when Arnie was, was coaching at the Sydney FC. And um, as an older player at that point, I think it's definitely something that, that I didn't need anymore, but I understood the value of it because if I had someone there as a young kid, because you, you sort of don't realise. And I think as an older player and, and as captain of Sydney, I, I guess I tried and I hope that I did my best in making those boys, uh, the younger boys, feel like they deserve to be there and feel that they were, you know, quality. But you just, you, you really never know at the end of the day. You know, I, I don't know if anyone would have had those thoughts um, uh, about me that I was feeling that, but it definitely was something that I had to deal with mentally and try and, like I said, prove to myself, right, you, you do deserve to be there and try and get rid of all that doubt as, as quick as I could, uh, could to get the best out of myself. But um, in team environments, it is quite difficult. And I don't think unless, unless you know, those players have someone there around them and, and whether it's someone that they can turn to at the end of the day and, and they have, you know, a mentor or a life coach or whether the team itself has something, um, then it probably is quite difficult to... Um, to know whether every player is feeling comfortable within where they are at the team. Yeah, well, I guess that's when, when people like yourself come into it as senior leaders to be able to provide that service also to to make them feel like they, they are, that they do belong. How, how did you, like you had to overcome it, but do you remember, like was it a conscious effort to have to overcome or did you develop skills as you went to be able to feel like you belonged in, in whichever situation because you were there? The, um, the conscious effort for me was within trains and within games. So for me, if I, if I felt that way, if I felt that I, if I had those feelings of doubt, um, definitely within a training session, when I was confident, when I was at my best, I was always wanting the ball. I wanted, I, you know, it didn't matter who had it. I was always coming, I was always showing for the ball. I was always trying to get on the ball and doing as much as I could with the ball. Um, but when I wasn't, um, that's what I struggled with, getting involved and getting touches on the ball and showing myself and being, you know, becoming an option when someone else had the ball. So those are the things definitely within within the football that I I found myself, if I was doing that, it's because of that feeling. So I, it was trying to talk myself out of it onto getting the ball, getting a few good touches, feeling confident within myself. Um, so those are the challenges that I had to overcome on the field to, um, you know, to make myself feel definitely a lot more comfortable. Mm. And it's kind of what you described in other parts of the journey as well. It's like, just, we'll just take the action and, and just get on with it. And, and, and that will show up as I go. You're driving with the physical aspect and the mental sort of catches up. Exactly right. Because otherwise you sort you end up hiding, you don't, um, and it makes it worse for yourself. You know, I think the only way, and it does take obviously, um, from strength. So while I'm looking at it and thinking it could it could be a weakness to uh, to be thinking the way I am, we, obviously I'm not the most positive type of guy. Then if I if I feel like I don't belong here, but in saying that, the positive way of, of thinking is right. If I if I get some touches, if I show action and, and and take it upon myself to get myself more involved, then that's showing a lot of character within myself, and that would bring positivity out of out of what I was doing and, and turning a negative into a, a positive situation. Yeah, spot on, love it. So you said uh, that one of the, the greatest challenges you had over your career was was being away from your family and like how that sort of same feeling has shown up at different times now as a parent and having to go away for different games and so on. So what, like, what was the depths of how you were feeling when you were in Belgium for the, that time um, and like, yeah, like, did you have moments where oh, I'm coming straight home, or like, how did you how did you stick it out? How did you manage those different moments? Yeah, it's um, it's funny. I was talking um, about that. We actually had a, a loss the other day um, of a someone quite close in the family, and also a family member, and, and um, just talking about you know the loss of life in general, what it feels like, and then looking at the person, um, you know, the partner who's been left behind or the family who's been left behind and, and thinking about that. For me personally, I've, um, you know, had to deal with, with, with some grief in that way with the, the loss of my uncle, the loss of my grandma. The loss of my grandmother um, happened to me when I was quite young and then, you know, I lost my other grandparents as I got a, a little bit older. But um, I think until you lose someone really really you know like a parent or a brother or sister or something really close it's hard to understand the feeling that they go through right and, and the only way i can sort of explain it when we were 
um, at, at um, the family's house only a couple of days ago. I was talking to my wife about it and, and said, Look, I, I remember being away and being overseas and going, uh, for me, I always struggled being away from family. And I remember when I'd have to go back for that pre-season when, you know, particularly in Japan, when it was really cold, we're down in, in the south of, um, or in Japan, it's, it's snowing and you just arrive and you think, right, I'm here for another another 12 months. So 12 more months of being away from my family. I'm here on pre-season. So the first two months, I can't see my wife. I can't see my kids. I remember I was okay when I was at training and, and I felt okay. But then when I'd come home and I was on my own, there were moments where, where I felt an actual physical pain um, yeah, wow. in, in, in my chest where um, – it is hard to explain and it's something that I've never felt before and, and, and that's the only way when I relate to, to, to people now losing someone, I imagine how hard it must be. It would be so much harder. I mean, for me, at the end of the day, I know that I'm going to see them, you know, so I, I can't imagine that feeling. But that, that's, I mean, to, to answer your question, I, I do remember those moments where there was an actual feeling of, of, um, of pain, you know, where it was difficult to deal with and just trying to distract my mind and, and turning to different things, whether it was watching a movie, listening to the music, um, or just getting out and going to see, going with someone, going to see a, a mate, looking for a teammate, um, getting out of the house so that I wouldn't feel that. Um, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, that, that's, that's something that I, I had to deal with and, and personally that's something that I felt. Yeah, and, and I think one of the challenges you've, of grief is that we look at them and we make these comparisons about what's worse and and like what's better and it's like well whatever pain you're going through was what you're going through it's it's actually not healthy to make a comparison because at the time it was it was traumatic it was difficult and um like i'm, I'm curious as you talk about that now going to countries like the um to japan and then uae, UAE like did you feel even more of an outsider in those environments or had you developed skills by then to be able to blend in more? Look, by then I, I was a lot older. So I went um, in my mid to late twenties to Japan. I think that that feeling was probably initially and more in, in Belgium. Um, you know, that those feelings that I spoke of, but when I, um, yeah, when I went away to Japan, there is that feeling of, of being an outsider, but to be fair, Japanese people, and, and I don't know if you've ever been there or, or experienced their culture, they are, they are incredible. I think to anyone who wants to experience something different and get a, a real appreciation for, for a culture that really respect each other, they respect their country, their people, um, it's something I've never seen before. The Japanese are hands down some of the, the, the most unique and best in the world when it comes to that. They made me, they made me feel at home, the people of the city that I went to play in, um, you know, hardly anyone spoke English, but people, if they could see that I was struggling with the language, they, they left the shop that they were working in to take me wherever I needed to go. And um, incredible, I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, the young players, when you know, the respect that they have for their, for their elders and um, the older players, that's something that we had as youngsters growing up, I mean, you wouldn't say a word when you played against, uh, when you did anything, even if, it, if it was, you were at fault, you made a mistake, you close your mouth, you got on with it and you just copped it basically. Whereas I think that's changed a little bit more. I think, um, I know personally, I was a lot more lenient with the, uh, the younger boys back then, but because of that, you get a bit more, a bit more answering back and a bit more things that you probably shouldn't happen. Whereas in Japan, the, the level of respect the young boys have for the older players is, is second to none. So they made me feel um, very, very welcome. They made me feel at home there in um, in the town that I went to play. And I I, I loved it. I love my time in Japan. Um, the two years that I spent there, it was, it was incredible. Amazing. You said, if we just journey back for a minute, you said when you, like, most people's path towards professional football from Australia has been to go to your, well, back then, go to Europe, um, eventually make it through to a bigger team and, and that's how you would get somewhere. You also said there's plenty that go and, and haven't made it. So at a time where you've been over there for a while but you're, you're homesick, but, but more than homesick, you're just missing that sense of family and community, you were at that point where you're like, well, I want to come home, but everyone else was telling you that you should stay. How did you, how did you come to that decision in the face of all that opposition? 
Yeah, it was uh, it was difficult. Like you said, I, I was faced with uh, so I didn't play much in my first year. I only played about 16, 17 games. Um, so it was clear to me that staying at, at Westerlo where I was um, because I thought the coach was going to be staying there. And not that I was treated unfairly, but when I looked at the squad and the way that the team was playing, and in particular up front in the role that, that I played with players not really performing, but me not getting much of a chance, I thought, I can't stay here, I have to go somewhere else. So the option was to find a new club um, in Europe or the A-League was starting at the time. And um, so I, I, while I threw it up as an option, my agent at the time, you know, my parents, um, friends and people that I spoke to, they all suggested to stay in Europe. You know, you, you can't come home, it's a, it's a step backwards. Um, and for me, like I said, it was, I tried to find any excuse and any reason that I could to justify coming back to Australia because I knew that that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to I wanted to feel comfortable again. I wanted to be happy again. I wanted to enjoy my football. And I knew that that would be in Australia. I knew it was against what I probably should have done if it meant trying to further and, and pursue a career in Europe. But it's where I feel comfortable. At the end of the day, I, I'd always played football because I loved playing football and, and it wasn't about anything else other than that for me. So for me to be happy and enjoy football, I wanted to come back home. So I made the decision on my own and, um, and obviously with my wife's backing and, um, and family's backing. And, um, you know, I came back to play for Queensland Raw for, for a year in the A-League, thankfully. I mean, it, it did what it did. It took off. It um, did well. The crowds were great and um, everything was good in, in those initial years. And even till now, there's definitely room for growth, no doubt. But the A-League is, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a, a big competition and, um uh, competition that the football fans within the country can be proud of and, and kids now have a good strong league to, to aspire to want to play in um, and um, yeah so for me coming home it was a difficult decision but one I was I was comfortable with, with the decision I'd made to come back so how old would you have been then 19 I was 21 21 so how do you find that strength and conviction to make that decision despite all these important people in your life telling you that it probably wasn't the best decision um i guess i guess the good thing about that is is the people that you have around you so while everyone was telling me um the best thing to do was probably to stay in europe um my parents were always great when it came to that they never really pushed me in terms of doing something that I didn't want to do, which is something I, I really valued, you know, that, um, you know, if I didn't feel like playing, I, I never played because I felt the pressure from my parents to have to do so, or I never made a decision in football um, because of a pressure from, from anyone that I had around me, and that included my agent at the time. So they, you know, while they're, they're when I made that decision and, and they could see that I was leaning more towards coming, they, I guess, tried to turn it into a positive and said, right, okay, so if you want to come back, then, you know, this is how we, this is how we're going to make it something good. You know, you've got to have a good year. We'll, we'll help you do that. We'll help you come back home and, and, and make that transition um, and make sure that this coming season is a, is a good one for you. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and uh, lucky that I did have um, people around me that have supported whatever decision I made. Awesome. I'm curious, like, obviously football's been a big part of your life, but, like, what do you love to do away from football? Is there a, is there a pastime when you were a kid that you just love to do? Is there something you do now that, that entertains you? Um, there's probably a, a couple things. Um, now, more more than, than when I was younger, um, is definitely golf. I enjoy going to play golf. It's... Um, which is interesting. I'm someone, when it comes to anything I do, I try... I really... Uh, I strive for, for perfection and trying to do it as good as I can. And I get really frustrated at myself when I can't do it properly. And for anyone who's played golf, <laughs> it's probably not the right attitude or, or uh, mental way of being when it comes to approaching that game. But so it's frustrating. It's a frustrating game, but one that I, uh, it's good to be able to, when I was playing in the back end of my career, go out and take some frustration out of the golf. Yeah, nice. <laughs> nice. You said um, through your career that you've, you know, you've earned decent money. Obviously, you're not in the ballpark of some of those crazy uh, figures in in Europe and around the world. But you said you've always been someone that's looked after it. It's 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 allowed you to go and do things like uh, property investigate, property investing, and all sorts of different things. Is that something that was innate in you? Is it something that was modelled to you by your parents? Like where where did that 
come from because like you said not not every player and not and it's not just about footballers but people in general not everyone is built that way where they naturally have that inclination no that's right and everyone handles it differently i can see with um my daughters already i mean they get some you know some money from the tooth fairy or um, the birthday comes around and, and the grandparents give them a few dollars and they want to go straight to the shops and spend it right so i can, I can see that it's definitely um just I don't know, I guess it's um, the way you're brought up in a way, but also you take that upon yourself. You know, I remember when I was when I um, was playing in the NSL, we trained at night. So during the day, there was nothing really to do. So I had a, I had a job during the day that um, for a local convenience store near me and I'd go and pack the shelves and, and do that. And I remember just the, the feeling of earning money um, before I was able to do it through football. Um, and my mentality always at the time was, was saving as much as I could. I loved seeing the envelope that I was putting that little bit of cash in just get bigger and bigger every, uh, every week. So, um, for me, that, that's something that was just always in my, in my head and, and, um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not a big spender. I do enjoy, you know, spending a, a bit of money on some nice things, but my mentality was always to, to save and, and to, um, yeah, do, do the best that I could with the money. I guess I listened to the advice that I was given that, um, you know, your football career is only, only a short one and you need to do what you can. And um, So my head was always there that when I turned, you know, I, I didn't really think that my career could end at any at any moment, which I guess is important. But for me, I thought, right, when I do end up finishing playing, what am I going to do for income? You know, I, I wasn't someone who spent what I was earning because I always had that fear in the background of when I stopped playing, um, what am I going to do? You know, I don't really have another skill set in terms of working or, or um, you know, a future outside of football. So what can I do with my money? And, and I guess, you know, as I got into the later stages of my career, again, I was fortunate in a guy that I used to play with um, because at, 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 um, the clubs do quite well. The A-League does this quite well, the PFA as well, where they get people out to come and, and show players how to invest their money, where to put their money, how to try and play for, for life after football. But it's from that point on, it's up to the player to make that decision. Um, and it can be daunting. It can be difficult because you've got so many different players, uh, people telling you where to put your money, how to do it. And, and, it, and it's hard to take that leap and, and to actually do it. So for me, I... I I'm quite lucky that I had someone who, uh, with with the property developing side of things, they, they they put me aside. I had a few meetings with them, and he said, "Right, basically, this is how it's done. You know, if you put your money in this, this can be your return." Um, and we started small, and then obviously, as my career progressed, I went to Japan, I went to the UAE, and my financial situation changed. It changed how much more involved and how much more I was able to do with the property. And it's something that the moment I finished playing. Uh, or, or basically even for the back end of my career, it didn't matter so much what I was earning because I was able to fall back on that and I was able, I was actually doing better on the property than I was with my what I was earning in, in my football. So it, it allowed me to really enjoy those last few years of my career, not having to worry about um, how things were going to look when I finished. Yeah. And did it allow you to play with more freedom and, and do you think you played better as a result of that? I, I genuinely think so. Yes, I think without um, with with the pressure of thinking that you've you know that next contract and this could be your last, so you need to maximise and make sure it's as much as you can get. There's definitely a pressure um, on yourself that comes with that to perform to hopefully try and get another year. Even for me, I was able to get myself into a position where I, I um, it didn't really matter what I was earning in those last few years, and and it didn't matter when I retired as long as. I felt physically I could keep playing than I would. When I felt that I no longer could, I was happy to take a, a step back from the game, walk away and say that I've, that I've done enough. Where, um, look, unfortunately, I think that's not always the case and players are trying to play as long as they can uh, for, for different reasons. Um, and, and financially, I, I think the money side of it definitely plays a, a big part. Yeah, oh, absolutely. More and more so in the professional era, and people playing to later and later in their years. Um, I mean, it, it's yeah, it's neither here nor there. There's plenty, plenty of positives from players we've seen play for a long time. I wonder how many have played uh, too long, but uh, that's awesome that you were able to make that decision based on whether you wanted to play or not, because it wasn't a money decision, which I, I guess allows you to be more at peace with that decision. 
Yeah, exactly. And that comes from, I guess, just my way of um, the way I was, was brought up uh, with my parents. They always had that, you know, um, mindset and, and way of um, that they brought us up where, you know, we didn't, if we went on holiday, it wasn't staying in the best and greatest hotels. It was if, if it was pitching a tent and staying in a park. But those are the moments that I remember really cherishing and having more fun than being in a five-star hotel as I got older, you know. So, um, but when I look back, I understand that it wasn't for the sake of being out, out in a park, in a caravan park. It was because financially that's what we were, we were able to do Where and still well, my parents keep food on the table and keep doing things. Again, we, we, we weren't, um, we didn't struggle growing up by any means, but... My parents were always smart with their money and, um, and, and showed us the value of money, you know, and I think working as a young kid allowed me to see the value of earning money for yourself and then I made that decision through all those things to um, to make sure that, you know, I always had more than, than what I was spending. Mm, so there's still hope for your kids yet? I'll change them, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Now, we got introduced through... Uh, friend of both of ours and Bundy Burrist and uh, your, your connection to Football United. I'd love to hear more about your journey because like you said, it was from for, for a career. You're quite young in your career where you started doing that work. And I'd also love to hear the, the, the positive impact that's had for you to be able to give back in that area. Yeah, and she's, um, she's a unique person. She's incredible. Um, her heart is, is bigger than anyone else's I've, I've seen and the amount of um, work that she does for no financial reward, um, for the pure joy of seeing other people happy and, and helping other people. Um, that energy that she has is, is infectious. And, and I think even as a young kid where sometimes you can get called to have to go and do a, an appearance for the club and, and you don't know where it is or it might be a shopping centre visit and you better go and sign autographs. Sometimes after a long day's training, it can be a bit difficult. The first time I went to see um, what she was doing um, and, and helping kids, um, mainly of refugee um, you know, backgrounds and um, the work she was doing with them and using football as a platform to just keep kids off the street and keep kids out of, you know, sometimes violent homes, um, bringing them to a place where they could just, it didn't matter what language you spoke, you had kids from all, all different places. I mean, football is a universal language. You, you get out, you see a, a, a football and anyone can kick a ball around and, and seeing them all laughing and just distracted from what else was happening in their life. And her joy in seeing that um, really struck a chord with me even as a young kid. Uh, it's something you don't really think about, you don't notice as a young boy that there are those people and kids that, that are struggling in, in different places and different homes. And um, it was something that I was really keen to um, to be a part of when I when I saw that, when I saw her um, drive to want to help these kids. So I've known Anne now for uh, for a, a long time and anything she's done, if I've been able to help out and, and come just, you know, through using Sydney FC or, or the fact that I play football, to have those kids there and to be with those kids and have those kids see someone. I remember the impact it had on me when I was a young footballer and seeing a, you know, a Marconi player come out to a training session we had and just, even if I didn't know who the player was, even seeing rugby league players sometimes come to our school and just knowing that, oh, wow, they're famous, you know, and seeing them come down, it, it does something for the kid, you know. And yeah. uh, I think sometimes as players, we don't realise that impact that we have uh, on, on people. Um, so being able to help out in that way and, and just uh, for me, it was a, it was a no-brainer. It was easy to do, and again, mainly because of what Anne was like and how much effort and um, you know commitment she put to it. So it was always for me a joy to be a part of. Yeah, and I've got to tell you, um, she had that childlike excitement when she was telling me that she that she had you signed for that for her new project that she did a few years back as well. So that's awesome because she, I'm, yeah, she gets so much back out of it as well. Um, so being able to help kids who much like you described in in like your football journey not necessarily fitting in help them to fit into a society that uh that it can be challenging and and to me that just ties in perfectly with your own journey from from having um immigrant parents and and learning to uh to live in a whole new part of the world like that must be such a blessing for you to be able to give back in that way 
Yeah, and I actually said that story when I um, went to one of the schools that Anne was, um, she had her Football United program. I remember chatting to the kids and being able to relate um, what my parents went through and what my father in particular went through with his journeys. I think back then and now you look at Australia as such a multicultural country that's such an accepting country and um, there's so many different people uh, from all over the world here and, and it's so... Um, it's much more accepted now. Whereas back then, um, it, it was it was difficult. You know, it was difficult for my my mum, my dad, going to school and not speaking the language. My mum was um, was bullied a lot um, at the time. Uh, she tells me she used to you know spend her uh, recess and, and lunchtime eating eating lunch in the bathroom just because she was away from everyone. And uh, and those stories, I think, um, again, they they show how difficult it was. Uh, my dad was in a fight every second week with uh, at school, and just because they were different, you know. And, and again, Australia is very, very different now to back then. But um, like anything, whenever there's change, sometimes people struggle. And that was a, a a period where Australia was going through a lot of change with the amount of um, people coming into this country. So the one place my dad always felt at home was just going out onto the football pitch and, um, and, and, and kicking the ball around because no one cared where he was from, what language he could play and he was a decent footballer. So they, they liked that about him, you know, and that's what helped him, um, you know, get more involved with the people and, and get in with the groups that, that were at that school. So, um, you know, I, I understand how hard it would be for, for a lot of immigrants and refugees that come to this country but I also understand the power that football can have um, to sometimes clear their minds and, and, and make that transition for them a lot easier. So definitely, um, you know, I, I guess there's a feeling there of understanding those kids a lot more than probably what other people do. And that's why for me, being a part of it was easy. Oh, drop my pen. Um, yeah, awesome. Now, I know you said you, you played football because you love it and you didn't do it for any of the accolades, but it, it must have been an incredible privilege to not only play for your country, but also to, to score goals. So what, what was that experience like to get the call up and then and to actually pull on that jersey? To play for Australia, again, um, it is a dream. I mean, I know it's a cliche, but every, every kid, when we watch Australia play, you dream that one day you'll be able to do that. And for me, um, I remember pulling on the green and golf for the first time, singing the national anthem for the first time. Um, it, it, it was like nothing else. And like I said, when I you know, would turn my head and see the quality of players that I was fortunate enough to be playing alongside in, in, that, in that period, um, it didn't get any better for me. And then, it, it, again, it's something that I, while I have that single moment with Sydney FC, the grand final as, as collectively when you factor everything in as being the best um, single moment. I think pulling on the green and gold um, is undoubtedly, I, I mean, I still have every single jersey that I ever that I ever wore for Australia, even the ones where I didn't, where I was just in camp and got a jersey. I've got all of them um, and I'll cherish them forever. You know, I, I, um, it's just a special feeling. It really is. And one I think you, you probably do tend to take for granted the more it happens. Um, but it's something that when it first happens, those first couple of times, and then when you look back on your career, it's something that is just incredibly special. Oh, awesome. And and another one of those accolades that, that uh, when I was doing a little bit of digging, I found is is being inducted into the, the Sydney FC Hall of Fame. Now, again, you don't do it for those accolades, but for a club that you've been such a big part of, and, and even it even says in the little blurb there, it says, like, when you think of Sydney FC, like... You think of Alex Brosk because you've been there for so many years and had such a massive impact on the club. Like that, that must be a proud moment and probably will be more so, I guess, as you get older to, to have that honour in... Yeah, in and it, it already is. I mean, for me, um, honestly, when I look back at my career, it's um, I don't look at where I, I potentially could have gotten or whether I made the right decision here or there or, you know, I just look back and just think at how much enjoyment I got out of it. For me, like I said before, I was always the most comfortable and enjoyed my football the most when I was playing in front of family and friends and when I had that support around me. So to think I played 10 years out of my, you know, 17, 18 years, more actually, because before that in Cancelo was at Marconi, which was around the corner from, from home. I mean, 
13 years out of, out of 17, 18, I, I got to play at home uh, in front of family and friends. That for me um, just, just tells me and shows me how lucky I was. So all of, like I guess those things that you mentioned of um, you know the accolades that come with having been at CFC for, for so long, it's just um, that the cherry on top. You know, I think it's it's incredible that I was able to have that luck, and also have that um, success with the club and, and have something that um, you know leave some sort of legacy. I guess. Yeah, the other thing that comes to mind, and this is more uh, for my own um, sport nut curiosity, is like you played with some incredible players in, in that. Sydney FC squad over the years. Um, it was um, uh, Giorginio was one that said you had stru- struck up quite a uh, good um, chemistry with. Is like was what, what's it like playing with those guys? Were, were you there when Del Piero was there as well? No, I wasn't there when he was there. But um, probably it's probably good because I had this image of Del Piero and what he was like, and then when I hear the stories of, of um, I guess the. the um, how to put it nicely in a way. I, I, he comes with, uh, he came with a lot of baggage. I think, you know, he, he had his own change room where he trained and sometimes he didn't even train with the team. And there's that side of it that I think um, that I probably would have struggled with. Not that I ever would have said anything. I mean, Del Piero is Del Piero and you let him do what he's got to do. But I think in, in Juninho wasn't like that. Juninho was a guy who won a World Cup, yet he sat next to us in the change room, put his boots on just like we all did went to dinners with with us and he was just one of the boys he trained with us he he wanted to be a part of everything we did he never at any moment made us feel that he was better than anybody else even though he was by a huge margin and that's what i respected and loved about him and you can feel that in the connection that i had with him that the players had with him um and how well he fit in with the team whereas when del piero um was at the club they I feel like they weren't a good team, you know. He was very good individually, but they struggled to make it work, um, you know, for the club and for the team. And, and, and it shows in the fact that, you know, uh, the team probably didn't do that well in terms of success in, in those couple of years. But what he did off the field and what he did in, in growing the fan base and bringing people to stadium, it's exactly what you expect out of a marquee. Um, he was probably the most marketable person we've had um, in the league, in the club. But as a player and someone who you've got to go and train with and see and be with every day, Janino uh, is the guy that you, you wanted to be around and you, and you respected a lot more because of the way he was. So having someone like him at the club and, and um, you know, being able to share a change room, share a pitch, share moments with a World Cup winner and, and who's so humble um, was incredible. Yeah, awesome. Um, what's next? Like you've, you, you're still helping out with Sydney in in some capacity, but you've you've had this football career. You've got some property stuff going on. Yeah, what do you see next for you in terms of how you be uh, working and and giving back? Yeah, it's something I'm still I'm still trying to work out and understand. And, and thankfully, I'm I'm in a good headspace where I've been out of the game now for two years. Um, and I'm still, you know, I don't have that itch of, of wanting to play again. I'm, I see the boys play and, um, and I haven't forgotten where my head was at when I, when I made the decision. So I'm very much at peace with the decision I made and, and grateful to be in that uh, headspace. But at the same time, what I always wanted when I left football was to enjoy time with the family, to get to spend time with the family. And um, I've had plenty of that, I think through COVID as well and being forced to be locked down. Um, it's given me a, a great chance to be able to do that and see the girls grow up, which happens so quickly. Um, but I think football's been a massive part of my life. It's something I definitely want to be involved with moving moving forward, which is why, you know, I did a little bit of uh, commentary and analysis stuff with Fox Sports over the last couple of years. Um, I'm now going to be involved with uh, Channel 10 and Paramount in, in um, you know, moving forward with the A-League and the soccer rules as well. Um, for me now, I guess it's just trying to find that balance of still wanting to be with the family and get to share those moments with the girls, but also stay in the game um, as, much as, I, as much as I can. So I think the commentary stuff and, and sideline stuff will be something I'll continue to do. Um, you know, the, the developing property um, is something that, fortunately, 
because it works in the background. It's not something I have to be too, you know, too hands-on with from day to day. It gives me a lot of time to be able to um, have that as an income while, you know, have, you know, spend, spend time with family, do some stuff with football. Um, so I'm, I'm still juggling how that's going to look at the moment, how that's going to work, but that's the plan for me. And then obviously we're sitting at sea as well. Like you said, having been there for so long and, um, you know, I'm starting to get more involved with them, with the centre of excellence that they're building at Macquarie. Uh, the club's also moving back to the new stadium, which is going to be incredible. So re-engaging with the, uh, you know, the members and the fans and making sure that we get as many people back to, um, you know, to Allianz Stadium when it opens again um, and just being around the club a lot more. So it's, it's I guess it's a little bit of juggling act over the next couple of years for me uh, with doing all those sorts of things and um, just making sure I, you know, can dedicate enough time to all of it and enjoy all of it. Sounds awesome. Alex, thank you so much for coming and having a chat with me. Uh, like you said about being humbled, I'm, I'm feeling humbled to have had this opportunity. Uh, thank you so much. No problem. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, mate. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.